not going to say much about my center. I hope you'll come visit us at the museum. We actually have a behind the scenes. We have offices for religious freedom, and we're we're a little beehive working on behalf of freedom of conscience for every person. We educate. We don't lobby. We don't litigate. But we are the education people. We convene people across all differences. I was just telling Clark at our committee on religious liberty meeting. We have everybody. If you think right now of somebody you know that should be at the table. That person or that group is at our table. Uh, six, uh, all the different Jewish groups, Catholic bishops, all the different Protestant groups, uh, secularist groups, uh, ACLU, uh, National Association of Evangelicals, uh, ACLJ, Pat Robertson's group, go on and on and on. We're all around the table several times a year. We engage one another with civility. That's how America's should work. Uh, and it does on our best days, and, and that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning with you or share with you this morning. Um, we just actually said goodbye this week to our religious and civic leaders who are taking our, three, our online courses that we're offering now for them. There are four of them, and they're very engaging courses, but three days, it's blended learning, so three days they spend with us at the museum. And we had, I mention it because we had 27 students this fall, for the, this week, three days, if I look a little bleary. Uh, and they are from 22 different religious traditions. And they're from nine states. Uh, it's new. It's a new program. But our idea is to prepare the next generation of leaders in this country, starting with religious leaders, to be people who understand and apply the, uh, the principles of the First Amendment or our Constitution, and who know how to engage one another across very deep differences with civility without compromising their own conviction. That's our vision. And so we partnered with seminaries around the country. We have six signed up so far. We have 10 or 20 more in the pipeline. And they're going to offer these courses. So it won't go away. You know, it'll be embedded into the curriculum of our seminaries in this country, which, believe it or not, if you're going to be a religious leader in this country, you probably will not be taking anything like this. So we think it's a gap that needs to be filled. So that's my little commercial for what we're doing, uh, and I invite you to learn more about it and help us to, to, uh, to carry out <clears throat> that vision. Well, all right, this is a defining moment for America. We don't have to say that twice. Uh, <laughs> in more ways than one. Uh, you can see it, for example, in this uh, battle we've been having now for some time about religious freedom and LGBT rights, the tension there, uh, to, to such an extent that... Uh, one side thinks religious freedom now is another word for bigotry, and the other side thinks that their religious freedom is being stripped away. Uh, this has become uh, the most disturbing uh, development in, in, in my lifetime for religious freedom, when you no longer can say religious freedom and have any agreement on what the heck you mean. And then, of course, American Muslims are caught in the crossfire of this debate over uh, how to combat religious extremism, and uh, as you probably well know, attacks on Muslims in, in America and Muslim institutions have spiked dramatically, almost one-third up over a year ago when the terrible attacks happened in Paris and San Bernardino. And anti-Semitism, you know, we have to remember anti-Semitism in this country is not something that happened a long, long time ago. As you probably know, it remains a major problem. The hate crimes in this country are based on religion, by far the, the greatest number against Jews and Jewish institutions in the United States, according to the FBI, at least. And many conservative Christians are very angry. They're convinced that their faith is under attack in the public square. 
And meanwhile, many secularists are equally convinced that atheists and humanists suffer from imposition of religion in the United States. So all of these conflicts, all of these tensions raise a simple but profound question, I think. How will we live with our deepest differences? Or to put it another way, how will we sustain this lively experiment in living and together and building one nation of many peoples, many beliefs? And can we find ways to negotiate our religious and ideological differences with civility and respect? Or are we doomed to continue on the present path of polarization and division? Well, obviously, a great deal is at stake in how we answer these questions. It, how we answer them will determine what kind of country we are, what kind of country we're going to become. And of course, I don't need to tell you, we only need to look around the world today, look at the world's headlines, and to understand that religious and ethnic divisions are among the most difficult to negotiate and the most challenging to address. Well, to consider how we might go forward as one nation of many peoples and faiths, I think it's essential that we return to first principles and reconsider in our time the meaning and significance of the religious liberty principles of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Only 16 words. Don't you think that's a rather a miracle? A bunch of lawyers wrote it, and it's only 16 <laughs> words. <laughs> I mean, imagine giving lawyers the task today. <laughs> but, but, you know, remember, this was before billable hours, so, uh, <laughs> so that probably explains that. But anyway, uh, but these 16 words are our civic framework, right? They are our ground rules that properly, properly understood and applied help us to negotiate our differences, enable us really to negotiate our differences, to understand one another, and sometimes, where possible, find common ground uh, and a common vision for the common good, which is what I've tried to do in my career. That's bring folks together across differences and find, and it, it's often very possible to do if you have the civic framework in place, the agreed to values of the First Amendment. Now, to recover the meaning of those 16 words, I wanted to actually not talk about today so much because that's very problematic. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want the, the, the divisions and tensions to, to uh, run through everything I, I say this morning. I think we need a little break from that. So I'm going to take us back to the 1600s. <laughs> aren't, you aren't you glad? <laughs> the, the 16, yeah, the 1600s, just to get you, get you away. In the 17th century, and how this, how we really found out in the first place how to deal with these deep differences, um, and how this, these principles that are our framework first emerged, and why going back and understanding this history and what they mean can really help us today. I think this is essential. I'm going to just tell one story. Actually, it's two stories in one, uh, and that's the arrival of first Jewish families in the United States. Because I think this captures, you could take any number of stories, but I think this particular story captures uh, who we are uh, and who we can be on our best days. As many of you know, the first boatload of Jewish families came to the United States in 1654. 
and the second four years later. First came to New Amsterdam, 1654. The second boatload arrived in 1658 in Rhode Island. Both arrivals, Jewish families came here seeking a safe haven. Uh, I don't need to belabor the fact, because I'm sure many of you know that history, that the uh, Jews around the world were never safe, often persecuted, uh, often used as scapegoats if something went wrong in, in England, you know, what all the king had to do is say, well, go in the, in the Jewish ghetto and uh, have at it. And that kind of released the steam, you know, uh, butcher people and so forth and so on. So that way you feel better about all the terrible things going on. This was actually uh, a pattern uh, for, for Jews uh, in much of the, of the world. Uh, and they naturally, these boatloads, <laughs> you know, uh, when they were thrown out, this boatload that came to New Amsterdam was probably thrown out of Recliffe, Brazil, we think. Uh, and that's when the, um, uh, the Dutch lost control of Recliffe and um, the Portuguese took over. And, of course, the Portuguese didn't want the Jews unless they converted. And, and if they converted, they would be called Moranos or pigs or swine. So you didn't get much for that conversion. Uh, but you might be allowed to be tolerated there, maybe. So that's... That was the story. And they left and looked for a place. And they chose New Amsterdam because that wasn't a bad choice, because the Dutch were more tolerant, you could say. Tolerant in the sense of you can be here um, in many of the places. And Recliffe was one of those. So they landed in New Amsterdam. Unfortunately for them, Peter Stuyvesant was the governor at the time. <laughs> I went to Stuyvesant High School, and I don't know. Singing, you know, that song to Stuyvesant, really, I should have known that was not the right thing to do. Uh, but anyway, uh, Stuyvesant was not very happy to see the, them arriving in the colony because he thought they would pollute the colony. Uh, calling Jews a repugnant, uh, disgusting race, he argued that if you granted them entry today, that tomorrow you might have to grant uh, you know, Lutherans or Papists. Uh, <laughs> In other words, they are worse things uh, <laughs> than Jews. Uh, now, he was overruled by the, the directors at the uh, Dutch West India Company, mostly for economic reasons, not because they loved the Jews. They had a couple of Jews on the board uh, who you know, uh, were helping to finance all this. So they had to allow them in. But it didn't mean they had to give them anything, free, freedom. They had to only um, tolerate them to be there. So you couldn't, you know, serve in the militia. You know, you couldn't uh, at first own property. You couldn't, uh, certainly you couldn't build a synagogue and worship openly. That would be uh, unthinkable. Well, this hostile reception of the Jews in New Amsterdam, that might have been the predominant story of America. That might have been our predominant narrative. I mean, it certainly is still in many places in the world. And there are some Americans, sadly, who wish that it were the predominant narrative who think we should be a place that picks and chooses, tolerates or not tolerates, uh, who worries about how we're going to be polluted by people coming in. in. Uh, and there are people who still work for their understanding of a Christian America, uh, where others are merely tolerated to be here. They never quite define what they mean by Christian, because if they did, many of us in this room would be left out of that definition. So it's a, it's a particular definition. Well, almost 300 years after that first boatload, was refused entry, another boatload was actually uh, turned away when Jews arrived on the St. Louis, uh, and they were denied sanctuary 
in the United States. Uh, now, this is symbolic because there were many, many other Jews denied sanctuary. Uh, this one group, though, has become kind of symbolic of the attitude at the time. And for most of World War II, as you know, the U.S. government was slow to do anything to save the <laughs> Jews. And there was anti-Semitism behind that, those decisions. And that delay had tragic consequences. It's true the War Refugee Board, created by President Roosevelt in 1944, is credited with saving maybe 200,000 lives, which is significant. But many other Jews, it was too little, too late. And thousands who might have been saved perished at the hands of the Nazis. Well, at various other times in our history, and I won't belabor the bad news, the rejection, as you know, of the stranger in the midst of the saints, uh, as it were, has turned ugly, even violent, as Catholics, Mormons, Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses, and now Muslims can readily attest. Well, you may recall that after 9-11, three people were killed in the United States uh, for no other reason that they looked like Muslims. One was actually a Sikh, one was a Muslim, another was a Coptic Christian. The only reason they were all three killed is they looked like Muslims, but the other thing about all three that they had in common, they were all Americans. They were all Americans. Well, while these culture war deaths are, in this, this country, thankfully rare, uh, the spirit of Peter Stuyvesant still lives on in the United States. Fortunately, there was another arrival. So here's the, the, the good, better news, uh, and a very different reception. Four years later, 1658, the second boatload of Jewish families had the good sense or the good fortune to land in Rhode Island. Now there they were told, for the first time in centuries, that they were free to practice their faith openly and freely as citizens of the colony. Now imagine, it's hard to recover this, imagine their astonishment. Here was a place the first place in the world where one's religious faith in no way affected one's standing in the political order. It's hard to recover that. So imagine the shock of the Jewish families. Here was the place where they could worship the first place where no, there was no established religion. And everyone was free to practice their faith without interference from the state. Unimaginable. Now, I wasn't there, of course, but I can almost picture the leader of the Jewish families hearing all of this with disbelief and asking, wait a minute, do you mean we can own property? Yes. Can, can we vote? Yes. And then the big question, can we build a synagogue and worship openly? And the answer, yes. Here, all are free to worship as they choose. And then I imagine the Jewish leader holding up his hands and saying, wait a minute, let's start all over. We're Jews. And then I picture the leaders of Rhode Island saying, yes, we know. But that doesn't matter here. Here is a haven for the cause of conscience. Now this reception which has become the United States on our best days, was due largely to the vision 
of that eccentric founder of Rhode Island, that strange man, that Puritan minister, Roger Williams. Now today, Williams is often misrepresented as a political reformer or as a civil libertarian, as though you the you know, the founder of the first chapter of the ACLU. <laughs> but Williams was actually motivated by his own very deep religious convictions, if you want to understand Williams. He wasn't banished from Massachusetts Bay for not being a good enough Puritan, not being Puritan enough. He was actually banished for being too Puritan. He was much more Puritan than the Puritans. And the key to recovering the full power of his vision for what he called soul liberty, S-O-U-L, is to understand that the one great abiding desire in his entire life was to find the true church. He attacked the churches of Massachusetts Bay for not fully separating from the Church of England. Even the separatist pilgrims in Salem didn't go far enough for Roger Williams. They were not pure enough for him. Later in Rhode Island, he helped found the first Baptist church in America, and they still look back to him as one of their founders, but he only lasted there two to three months, <coughs> which was actually a long time for Roger Williams to be in one. Uh, <coughs> there was even a period where he would not say grace with his wife because she still consorted with ministers of the gospel who he considered to be corrupt. You know, today we would probably call him a fundamentalist. Uh, I mean, he drew a pretty tight circle, you know, Roger and God. For, uh, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, not only, he argued, were the churches of Massachusetts Bay corrupt, according to Williams, but also the, charter, the, county, the colony's charter was invalid. He declared that the land didn't belong to the Puritans didn't belong to them. It actually belonged to the people who were already there, that is, the Indians. And they couldn't have this land unless they obtained it fairly. Well, that's a radical idea even today, right? <laughs> but what angered Williams above all else and what really got him banished was the failure of Massachusetts Bay to protect liberty of conscience, soul liberty for all. Now, Williams was not interested in religious liberty for political reasons only, or for the sake of social reform. He was for religious liberty or soul liberty because he deeply believed that God requires it. Our whole experiment on religious liberty really can be traced back to that conviction. God requires it. God requires it. So he had no choice whether he liked it or not. He wrote, it is the will and command of God, and he was writing this in answer to his nemesis, John Cotton, that since the coming of his son, Lord Jesus, a permission of the most paganish, Jewish, Turkish, or anti-Christian consciences and worships be granted to all men in all nations and countries, and they are only to be fought against with that sword which is only in soul matters able to conquer, to wit, the sword of God's spirit, the word of God. Notice, Roger Williams didn't accept other religions. I mean, why would he? He's not one of them. I mean, why would you be something that you're not? 
He believed the gospel was the truth, the way, the light. He didn't accept other religions. He thought many were wrong and dangerous, Quakers most of all, <laughs> the worst. By the way, anti-Christian consciences, that was Roman Catholics, Turkish, of course, Muslims. But Williams believed that the gospel commands that people be given the freedom to choose for or against the truth. That's the only source of faith. And that's the command of the gospel as he, as he understood it. Or as he might have put it, I don't, he didn't, but he might have said, people must have the right to be wrong. Or there's no faith. Religious liberty, in other words, is a fundamental, precious, and alienable right for every person. Or as Jefferson put it, we're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. This is the first. When this liberty of conscience is denied by the state, Williams argued, the state commits, and excuse the language, what he called spiritual rape. Citing history's rivers of blood fought over religious differences, Williams declared that government coercion in matters of faith leads either to persecution and death or, at best, widespread hypocrisy. For Williams, no true church is even possible. Now, he didn't see a true church in his time, but he wanted the conditions to be there so that one could be there. But no true church is even possible without what he called, long before Thomas Jefferson, a wall of separation between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the world. And the filthiest word in the English language, the dirtiest word, the most unspeakable word in the English language, for him, for Roger Williams, it was Christendom. When the gospel was married to the state, the true church was lost. Now, that's why he founded and worked so hard to preserve what King Charles famously dubbed the lively experiment in Rhode Island, a place with no established faith and full free exercise of religion. If you hear the First Amendment, that's where it comes from. This bold endeavor eventually becomes the majority report in the United States. It eventually becomes the American arrangement, the American experiment in religious liberty as embodied in the religious liberty principles of the First Amendment to our Constitution. But religious liberty is not a machine that runs by itself. No law, no court, no Constitution can sustain it unless individual citizens take responsibility to uphold it, not just for themselves, but for all others. So one of my very favorite moments in the life of Roger Williams came towards the end of his life. He was in his 70s. In those days, that was considered quite elderly. And he wanted to debate the Quakers one last time in public before he died. <laughs> you know, he was just laser-focused on making sure they understood that they were wrong. So <laughs> he rode 30 miles across river to, by himself to debate the Quakers for three days in public. Three days. And, <laughs> and he was heckled by his own citizens of Rhode Island for his trouble. I mean, you have to remember, Quakers were quite zealous at the time. I don't know if you know that history, but you think of Quakers very quiet and social justice and so forth. And so forth. In those days, they, to make a point, they might run through the streets naked. 
Uh, they might come into your worship service this morning and get up and start shouting. So they were, they were quite uh, zealous, let's just say. So he was debating the Quakers. Uh, and, but in those several days, he modeled what I consider the core principles and virtues, the rights and responsibilities that are necessary to sustain any experiment in religious liberty. In other words, there's the legal framework, the Supreme Court, but really you don't sustain it through the lawyers and judges. You sustain it through how people live and how they treat one another. First and foremost, in those three days, he upheld an absolute commitment to soul liberty or liberty of conscience as an inherent right for all, even Quakers. All are free to persuade others to their truth, but no one, not even the founder of the colony, may use the engine of government to promote one religion over another. Second, he demonstrate, demonstrated the highest level of civic responsibility, what might be called the golden rule for civic life, and that is my rights are best guarded and protected when I take responsibility to guard yours, to guard the right of all others, including people I deeply disagree with. And third, he practiced that third R, respect, civility. His whole life was just shot through with commitment to civility. So he would debate, of course, differences. That's what public square should be. But, and, and, and debate is vital to democracy. But how we debate, not only what we debate, is essential for keeping us together as one people of many faiths and beliefs it should not degenerate into personal attacks. And he never allowed it to. And a sign of this is when after he died, and Puritan historians were writing about Roger Williams, they, they, they disagreed with everything he said, just about everything he said. Thought he was completely mad. How can you have a society without an established religion? I mean, that was unthinkable in those days, unthinkable. And here he was creating this, this crazy place that anything was, any conscience was allowed to be expressed. Unthinkable, so they argued against him, and yet one of those, those very historians who knew him said, Roger Williams, he was the sweetest soul I ever knew. Another one said, he had the root of the matter in him. Well, is this arrangement in religious liberty that Roger Williams envisioned in Rhode Island and that we are trying to, to create and sustain in the United States? Is it a messy arrangement? Of course it is. And there are many then and now, who disdain and despise the messiness of this arrangement. For example, when the New Amsterdam clergy, New Amsterdam, actually, the officials, refused entry to Quakers, a boatload of Quakers in 1657, the clergy of the Dutch Reformed Church were asked, where did the Quakers go? And this is what they said. They said, we suppose they went to Rhode Island. <laughs> For that is the receptacle of all sorts of riffraff people and, and is nothing less than the sewer of New England. All the cranks retire thither. They are not tolerated in any other place. Well, for some Americans, including some of our current religious and political leaders, the United States, by opening its doors and protecting people of all faiths and none, is becoming the sewer of the world. But for many other Americans, and I 
I hope it's most Americans, who believe with Williams in the truth of soul liberty, America is or aspires to be what Roger Williams called Rhode Island, a haven for the cause of conscience. Freedom is messy, but what a glorious mess. At a moment in our history when we need to be reminded of what is at stake in living up to the First Amendment, we only need to remind ourselves of these first two boatloads of Jewish families and the story of these two very different receptions that has these stories have echoed through our history. The Jews of Newport, Rhode Island, eventually did get the money together, and they did build a synagogue there. It's now the oldest uh, you know, functioning, uh, continuously functioning synagogue in the United States, but, uh, Turo Synagogue. But when they built that synagogue, they, they put in near the, near the, uh, the, uh, the pulpit, they put in a, a trap door. Now, the docents will have different... Well, we don't really know why, and maybe they were trying this, and they had different ideas because there's no real... They put in a trap door, but, you know, all I can say is that if I were a Jew in that time building uh, a synagogue, uh, even in the 1700s, um, I, I, I would have built a trap door. I would, who, who would have believed, especially Jews, that this, this very tiny, fragile experiment, this reviled experiment in soul liberty would survive for the ages? But here's what I think we need to remember as Americans today. Despite our flaws, our chapters of nativism, anti-Semitism, our current outbreak of Islamophobia, we can still be justly proud that those Jews have never had to use that trap door. <laughs> now, can we sustain and expand this lively experiment in what is now the most religiously, one of the most religiously diverse societies in the world? Yes, but if and only if we reaffirm and apply the principles of rights, responsibility, and respect that flow from the First Amendment. These principles are not, they are not, I want to underscore, as the great American public philosopher Father John Courtney Murray used to say, they are not our articles of faith. We have our articles of faith in our different ways in this country, and we are protected to express them, to live them out in the public square. That's what America's about. And for most people of faith, these articles of faith are the highest commitment in our lives, greater than the Constitution, greater than the state. We wouldn't be religious if that weren't the case. But they are, Father Murray argued, our articles of peace. There are articles of peace. They are the civic charter that enables us to negotiate our deep differences, our deep religious and ideological differences as we seek a common vision for the common good. So in this election and beyond, it is for us, we the people, to reaffirm our articles of peace and by so doing, sustain and expand the boldest, the most successful experiment in liberty of conscience the world has ever seen. Thank you very much. We've got time for a few, a few, questions. few questions, and I'll try to be short answers. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah. Well, I, it's, uh, I think that's a very important story, uh, both 
a good story in the sense that the effort made to people meet their neighbors. I mean, the, the truth is the polls tell us, Pew tells us, that when people who have actually met and know Muslim Americans are by far more understanding and accepting and have a better view. So the more you know people, the better it is. The bad news, the bad part of your story, which I think is, is widespread, is that for about more than a decade now, there have been about five major groups that have been funded with tens of millions of dollars to educate people about Islam. And so there are a great many people who feel they are educated about Islam. When I, when I go around the country and work on these issues, they tell me, yes, uh, we know, here, let me quote you this, let me quote you that. And of course, as a religious studies person, you know, I, I, I'm appalled because it's miseducation, but they are convinced they have been educated. So we're up against not people who just are ignorant about Islam, not people who just maybe have prejudices. We're up against people who actually think they know. That's much more difficult uh, to counter. Now, if I had tens of millions of dollars, uh, I might do a better job. We have had many programs uh, to try to talk about what the truth is about uh, Islam and Muslims and understand all these issues, the differences within Islam and all that. You know, but those nuances are lost when the public has been, for many years, subjected to this propaganda. Propaganda works. And I'll also say religious illiteracy is uh, pernicious. We do not educate our young people much about different religions, and I'm working very hard in public schools to improve that. But if you add re religious illiteracy plus propaganda equals intolerance and hate and that kind of thing. So we're, we've got to do better. I yes. One, yeah, one, one, let's go. Yeah, I'll do Most try to. Most of us here um, know the Pledge of Allegiance. Yes. At your round table, are there objections to the inclusion of under God in <laughs> Oh, sure. There are. Uh, this is, yeah, sure. Because, you know, this is America. So, <laughs> But, see, the reason we come together at the Committee on Religious Liberty is because we all care about conscience and freedom of conscience for everybody, people of all faiths and no faith. Some would argue that conscience is burdened when the state puts God in a state patriotic exercise. They think that's a violation of no establishment. Others say, no, that's just a mention of our tradition and our history and who we are. Uh, and the justices have agreed with the latter position, uh, by and large, and so have the lower courts. So that's the law. But, of course, there are always going to be those, and a, and a growing number of Americans are not religiously affiliated, at least one quarter of our population now. Many of those are explicitly humanists, free thinkers, atheists, agnostics. They want to see a more level playing field, and they don't think the state should be in the business of invoking God. So the argument will go on, right? Uh, the justices don't think this, is, this rises to the level of an establishment of religion, most of the justices, maybe all of them right now. But uh, they do think that government imposing prayer on young people in a school, captive audience, does rise to the level of, a, of state establishment of religion. So they make distinctions. And, but, of course, people should debate, disagree. That's what it's all about. But the key is to get... It, to get us together and do it with civility, right? And respect for the rights of other people. So people are willing to lose on a court case and still be part of the, the discussion if they're treated respectfully in the process and not excluded. So that's what we try to do. We try to listen to each, each perspective, and then somebody's going to win and lose, right, in a democracy on a lot of these issues. But right, rights of conscience need to be constantly re-examined. How can we protect conscience? 
Uh, and that's true in Hobby Lobby, that's true in the same-sex marriage debate, that's true in the pledge. The question is, how can we both uphold uh, our patriotism, uphold our commitment to non-discrimination, and still protect conscience at the same time? So this is the question for me. This is the key, the burning question of our time. Yes. Yes. You haven't seen the hat go around yet? <laughs> no, we're, we're locking the doors and sending around the hat. No, where does the funding come from is the question. We have a foundation ourselves, the Freedom Forum, uh, which was the old Gannett Foundation, and helped build the museum and still is a big major supporter. But we are such a big operation now with so much going on uh, that we need other revenues, so the museum does charge, uh, but if you let me know, I'll get you in. Uh, it's too late, too late for you, you had to pay, but, uh, but next time you come, I'll give you, I'll give you a ticket. Um, but then we also have uh, foundations and donors who, who support. My Religious Freedom Center, frankly, is mostly foundations that I have gone to and I have said, do you care about the future of the country? Uh, that's a pretty good argument. Uh, and they have a Cousins Foundation, Arthur Binding Davis Foundations, and others have given to my work. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I was giving you the good money. The bad, <laughs> the bad money is coming from, uh, and we don't all know all the sources, but uh, Jihadi Watch, uh, uh, Act for America, the Islamization, Stop the Islamization of America, Pamela Geller, uh, uh, Spencer, these folks have convinced a number of very wealthy people and some foundations uh, to support them. So the Center for American Progress actually did a study of this a few years ago, and at that time they said $40 million, but I think it's now more, much more than that, uh, have flowed into about five organizations. So if you go to their website, they probably still have that study up, and you can see some of the foundations that they have uncovered. It's a little hard sometimes to find this money. Uh, but there are, you know, understandably, people who are very worried and very concerned about terrorism, who see so much involvement of Muslims in these terrorist things, and, and naturally, the reservoir of, of distrust and, and fear of Islam that has gone back for hundreds of years in, 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 the, in the West feeds in to, and, and fits the narrative. But here's the issue. Here's the big issue. Whether, I mean, obviously, this things going on in, within Islam that are very, very dangerous and challenging. There's a lot of war, civil war within Islam, uh, so nobody should underestimate that. The bigger question is, is Islam itself the reason for all of this? And that's what these folks have decided to argue, that Islam is inherently a violent, evil ideology, political ideology, religion, and must be kept out. The others of us argue, no, Islam is, is like Christianity. It has many, much variety and it has extreme movements, but the core message of Islam, like the core message of Christianity, is, uh, is something that we, we all should be respectful of and, and protect. So those are the two competing narratives. And the last thing I'll say about this is, uh, you know, the American Muslims in this country that I've worked with for so many years among the most patriotic, committed Americans that I know. I've worked with them for 25 years. I know most of the leading um, American Muslim groups. 
the mosques in this country are our first line defense against extremism. They're really working actively to fight radicalization. Um, we need more mosques, not fewer, if we want to stop radicalization. Um, and Islam itself, if Christianity, all right, I'll, I'll just say this, the last thing. As soon as people start saying that the KKK and the white supremacist groups that claim to be Christian, as soon as we label when they do something, and the FBI tells us that the most terrorist attacks by far in the United States in recent years have been from white supremacists, far more than Muslim folks, white supremacists. So the moment these folks in these groups will start labeling those people Christian extremists, then I'll be happy to start saying Islamic extremists, right? The moment that we say that Christianity is implicated as an evil, violent religion because people in the name of Christianity do these horrible things all the time, then, I'll, okay, I'll concede. But they won't do that because they know that's not true. And it isn't true. I'm a Christian, and I, don't, I know it's not true. And all of my Muslim friends know it's not true of Islam. And there are some courageous people putting their lives on the line around the world, Muslim leaders, to try to change the narrative and to try to fight back against the radicalization, the extremism that has emerged in Muslim-majority countries and is small in numbers but powerful in impact. And Muslim-majority countries now, many of the leaders are saying, we need to protect religious minorities in our countries and we need to do a lot more. So we need to be allies with that and work with that, not demonize our friends.